story, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him, him being Jesus, by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless uh, God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, and do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. All right, so going back to 3 verse 1. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. These descriptions are important, and they, they all signal something. To describe Nicodemus as a ruler of the Jews, uh, almost certainly to John's audience, would equal member of the Sanhedrin, which was um, sort of the decision-making, local legislative body, uh, local judging body uh, in uh, the Jewish community there, apart from the priesthood, which was, um, it seems, uh, mostly uh, under the influence of the Sadducees, whereas the Pharisees had influence in the Sanhedrin. Um, and so uh, that's, I think, what John is meaning to convey here, that Nicodemus is both a Pharisee and uh, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, a, a wheeler and dealer in politics, we might say, today. The name Nicodemus means victorious among his people. He is described, when it says as a ruler, that, that word means first one or prominent one, among the Jews. Um, so, very notable person, Nicodemus. We don't know the exact nature of um, his importance within the Sanhedrin, but it seems like he was one of the preeminent, prominent members. So this man comes to Jesus by night and says to him, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, or you've been sent from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here the setting is established. This is a secret conference. He comes to Christ by night. So the secrecy is for Nicodemus' sake. It's not for Christ's sake. Um, Christ never did anything in the dark. Christ never did anything in secret in the sense of um, not in truth. Truth is associated with the light and the darkness with deception. So Christ did not come to spread darkness but to shed light on everything but man likes the darkness and so Nicodemus comes to Christ by night and we can kind of imagine and speculate about some of the considerations that might have driven him to come to Christ by night I think most of it had to do with the fact that Nicodemus as a prominent one among the Sanhedrin as a Pharisee um, he's one of the most famous men in Jerusalem and who he associates with and who he holds conference with um, is a, a matter of politics and a matter of perception. And um, 
Pharisees had not yet publicly taken a position on Jesus and his teaching at this point. This is very early on. And there's a pattern of testing, as in the Pharisees testing Jesus, that starts here and continues throughout Jesus' work and grows more and more hostile until, before too long, the Pharisees come to openly oppose Jesus. But when Nicodemus says, what Nicodemus says to Jesus in verse 2, where he says, uh, you've come from God as a teacher, no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Well, this is, it's a subtle and textured kind of statement, or another way to to say that uh, maybe more simply is that Nicodemus is talking like a politician. He's speaking like a very skilled, um, a very skilled politician and rhetorician here because um, this statement is sort of double-sided in every way. On one hand, Nicodemus is acknowledging Jesus. He says he's a, he's a teacher sent from God. So that's an acknowledgement of Jesus's authority on some level anyway. And importantly, his reasoning about how he knows that Jesus is a teacher sent from God is from observing observing the signs that Jesus has done. And so that's a New Testament principle we understand as well. Teachers are known by the fruits of their teaching. And Jesus' teaching came with signs to prove his authority. And so Nicodemus sees those signs and he's impressed by them. The Pharisees generally um, seem to always want a sign, a confirming sign. Jesus would give them signs, and the signs would not be enough. So, on one hand, it's Nicodemus acknowledging Jesus to a certain extent, but then notice the we, the we in that statement. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Nicodemus isn't speaking only for himself, but he's speaking as a representative of the Sanhedrin, either as a whole or some faction of the Sanhedrin. He's speaking for a group. And the subtext of what he speaks is that it's the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin that get to declare what's of God and what isn't. And underneath that is the idea that it's the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin that are going to decide who is and isn't the Messiah. On the surface... Nicodemus is speaking praise for Jesus. But underneath that, there's a plan to bring Jesus into a political system and uh, to use him to set an order that's not the order that God desires, not the ends that God desires, but the ones that man desires, the ones the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin desire. And people still use Jesus in the same way today. They want to take him and plug him into whatever they already want to do whatever they already want to accomplish, whatever their goals are. Well, this isn't the purpose of Jesus. So Jesus begins to teach the teacher in verse 3. Jesus responds and says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, A lot of times I think when I was younger, when I would read this, I would think that this was a bit of a, of a non-sequitur in, in conversation, right? But it's truly not, and the way to understand it is to read it as a direct response to what, Jesus, what Nicodemus has just said. So Nicodemus has said, we know you're from God, no one can do these signs unless God is with them. And Jesus says, 
unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has stated that he knows Jesus has come from or has been sent from God. So all Jesus is doing is taking Nicodemus' own description and intensifying it to teach that not only was he sent from God, but he was born from God, and, and so are all of us. The, the language of Middle Eastern culture, uh, it says Middle Easter culture, I should say Middle Eastern, sorry about that. The language of Middle Eastern culture is, you know, was, and, and still is to this day, um, uh, prone to metaphors and idioms and hyperbole. That's why some of the best you know, poetry in the world comes out of that part of the world because they just speak in uh, these, these images, these metaphors, these idioms. But in, in Jesus' time, if you said truly, truly, the, the Greek you know, equivalent of that, it, it's a way of signaling that what you're about to say should be taken on its face, that it's without exaggeration. It's another way of saying... I'm not kidding you when I say, I'm being serious when I say whatever you're going to say. Um, it's a way of saying, no joke, no lie. <laughs> uh, this is the real truth, uh, apart from any sort of you know, metaphor or idiom. If one is not born from above, that's sort of the, the, the sense of the, of, of the Greek. Above would have also strongly implied a new, newness, and so... What you see often is it's translated born again, and that's a perfectly appropriate translation. Born from above would also be uh, uh, in keeping with, with the Greek. He cannot, or is not able to see the kingdom of God. And so this teaching, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It operates on several levels. Firstly, it's a, it's a subtle rebuke of Nicodemus and the motivations of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Jesus says, you claim to be able to observe what's happening in the kingdom of God. You claim to be able to see the comings and goings of the kingdom of God, but have you been born again? You say that I'm sent from above, but have you been sent from above? Have you made this personal for you? But secondly, not just to, apart from being a teaching to Nicodemus, which it certainly is in the immediate context, but it's a teaching for us that we cannot even begin to see and appreciate God's work until we rest in the knowledge that God has birthed us and raised us and brought us forth to this point through his love and through his mercy. This is a realization that happens for the first time at a specific moment in time and then hopefully it repeats itself throughout our Christian walk realizing anew each day that we are loved by God and cared for by him and brought to where we are by him. But the first realization in this process of becoming a new creature is that God has loved us and has made us for a purpose and has made a way for us, a way for me personally, if I will only step into it. If I will just reach out and take the hand that's been extended to me. When we're first teaching brand new people the gospel, this is the first realization, the first aha moment we've got to be directing them toward. You are already a child of God in the sense that he created you. He brought you here. He has an intention, a purpose in mind for you. 
and he wants more than anything for you to realize it, for you to embrace him and embrace, and through him embrace your own greatness, what you could be in Christ. Nicodemus said to him, how can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? And we might mock Nicodemus, and I've heard people do so for, for being so literal here. Right? He says, I can't go back into my mother's womb. But he's just doing what Jesus asked him to do, because as we said, truly, truly just means take what I'm about to say very literally. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of uh, what, it, what it is meant to convey. And so Nicodemus does, and he seems to genuinely not understand what Jesus means. So I don't think he literally thinks that Jesus means to suggest that he try to go back into his mother's womb, but he's asking Jesus to clarify his teaching. And this is a pattern that you see over and over again with Jesus, is that Jesus initially will often teach in, in short, profound statements. And then, when he's asked for clarification, he'll explain further, and that's always, you know, to our great benefit, it's always to the apostles' benefit, because they always are asking for it. And uh, whenever Jesus takes extra time to explain something that he's previously already taught, well, and he just goes ahead and hands you the explanation, you should pay attention to that. Um, so uh, this is, a, I think, a, a, another uh, instance of that same pattern. Jesus speaks his initial teaching in verse 3. Uh, Nicodemus wants follow-up. Nicodemus wants explanation, and so... He's saying, I know you can't literally mean be biologically born again, so maybe you can explain a little more, Jesus. And so, Jesus does. He answers in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And notice, again, truly, truly, that's the no exaggeration, no lie tag that Jesus uses here. Jesus... <clears throat> In his second statement that you find in verses 5 through 8, he is both explaining the first statement and carrying that same idea one step farther, right? Notice the two elements here, water and spirit. Now, water does have to do with baptism and spirit does have to do with the walk of the spirit. That's the, the sort of breakdown of this passage that I've, I've heard a lot through my life is that Water has to do with being brought into the covenant with Christ in, in, in the watery grave of baptism. And spirit has to do with the walk of, of the spirit. Uh, and a lot of times in the church, we're, we're kind of vague about what that means. And question mark, we don't really know. And I've tried to talk in specifics uh, in a lot of recent sermons about the spirit. And it's kind of just an ongoing thing uh, that I bring up a lot because it's something that I think we kind of tend to neglect sometimes. Um, so I think both of those things are important. The water part's about baptism, the spirit part's about the walk of the spirit. But I, I, I don't know that that's necessarily how Christ intends Nicodemus to take this, because uh, those are two things that I think Nicodemus would have had some difficulty um, orienting himself toward, at least at this point in his development. Baptism and, and, and the idea of personally walking in the spirit, because... The idea of the Holy Spirit for the Pharisees and for a lot of the, 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 the sort of mainstream sects of Judaism at the time of, of Christ, the Holy Spirit was set apart, was sanctified, was far away 
and could be accessed only by very special people, certain priests, certain prophets. But the idea that uh, it was a gift which was open to all, that everyone could aspire to a personal relationship with the Spirit of God, to be led by the Spirit of God, well, that is a big idea in the first century. Water and Spirit. I think Christ intends for Nicodemus to take this as a reference to Genesis 1. I mean, look at Genesis 1, 2. And turn back there. Because, I mean, I, you know, we all know Genesis 1. We have all know, know Genesis 1 and 2. But notice something about Genesis 2 that I think we miss sometimes. The earth was formless and void, or the land was formless and void, and darkness was over the, the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The elements of water and spirit come together in the moment right before God begins to act and create order in Genesis 1. Right before uh, light is brought forth, the Spirit of God is hovering over this image of, of dark, chaotic waters. So the idea is for a new creation to be brought about in you, that same thing has to happen. The, the water and the spirit have to meet. And by that I mean what is restless and chaotic in you like the waves of an ocean it must be calmed and set in order by the spirit of God, the, the wind of God, because those two English words which are different are the same word in, in Greek. So that plays in here. Notice also that we've moved from discussing seeing or perceiving the kingdom of God in verse 3 to now in verse 5 we're talking about uh, entering the kingdom of God. And I do think it is possible to see and perceive the kingdom and never enter it, sadly. <clears throat> so Jesus has not only explained what he meant in verse 3, but he's taken it one step farther. Seeing the kingdom is vital, and we shouldn't neglect the importance of that idea. Because that is the moment of conviction, when we see finally that God has a purpose and a place for us, and he's made a way for us, and he is calling us constantly. And hopefully that's the moment of trust, that's the moment of faith, that's the moment where we say, I am going to put my trust in God and in the gospel, and that is going to be my lot in life. But entering the kingdom happens only when we're willing to let God control and master us. In other words, it's repentance and baptism and all the things that are incumbent upon a Christian when he follows, he or she follows this path. And ideally, the seeing and the entering happen all in one breath. We see that God has made this way for us. We trust. And then we enter. We turn away from standing against the wind and turn toward the way God is, is headed. We'll get more into that idea here in just a second. But Jesus says in verse 6, that which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Christ speaks to something here that's fundamentally true of every human being, we are, at our core, both born of the flesh and born of the Spirit of God, in the sense that we're all born of the flesh and that we have biological parents. We have parents according to the flesh. We all have a mother and a father. 
but we are all born of God in the sense that we all come from him and we live and are preserved by his will and it's to him we must return. The question of what you are, what you consider yourself to be, it's a matter of how you see yourself through Christ, how we come to see ourselves when we enter into his covenant. Everything, it seems to me anyway, everything in modern society is is oriented around the flesh, and not just toward the indulgence of the flesh, but toward convincing you that you are no more than the flesh. That the flesh is the end of all meaning. And it makes a difference in the way we act and the quality of our lives, how we see ourselves, because if you see yourself as a glorified animal, then that is how you're going to act. But if you see yourself as something eternal, something with an existence that's beyond the flesh, well, you might begin to act like what you are. You might begin to act like a soul, like a self, like an eternal soul. Do not be amazed, he says in verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born again. And see, people's reactions inevitably reveal some inner truth. We watch for uh, amazement. We watch for laughter. We watch for um, smiles. We watch for facial expressions because they tell us something about what's going on within. Well, Nicodemus' marveling reveals him for what he is. He's a teacher according to the flesh, masquerading as one of the spirit. But before we're too hard on him, I mean, we marvel in this exact same way at at many, many things that Jesus says. Because just like Nicodemus, it's, it's very difficult for us to see outside the limitations of our flesh. It's hard for us to put on the, the, you know, God's point of view. uh, And even to say it that way is um, almost smacks of, of, of blasphemy, but to try to put ourselves in the position of the Creator and of His Son who came to show us His way, it's very, very difficult um, for us to contemplate truly the things of God. And so we can forgive Nicodemus for struggling with this a little bit. But yet Jesus says, and this is important to take away, He importantly says to Nicodemus, we should not be amazed by this teaching. And I think what He means by that is that it should be apparent to us, this teaching from just the Old Testament, that Nicodemus should already know this. And he's going to go on to say uh, later on in, in, uh, in chapter 3, uh, he's going to say, you are a teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things. He's not saying this to, uh, to mock Nicodemus, but just pointing out that some of the most rudimentary, fundamental, faith-level problems that every believer is confronted with, these Pharisees, these so-called teachers of Israel, had not even grappled with at all yet, to the point where Nicodemus is amazed that this idea uh, that, that one can be born from above, can live in accordance with the Spirit. So Jesus explains it this way in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, 
but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. The word in the Greek for wind or breath or spirit, it's all the same word. So Jesus is using some wordplay here. He's comparing the Spirit of God with the wind that we all know about, right? You stand outside on a windy day and you can feel the wind blowing. We, I mean, not to bring it up again, but we went to Alcatraz on Thursday. You can feel some really strong wind standing on the rock. And I didn't realize this either. This is just a side note. But they put the, work, the, the yard where they got to go out for an hour a day. It's on the side of the island that's facing the Golden Gate. It's getting all the worst wind. And it's, uh, it's brutal standing out there. The idea that that was what they looked forward to all day was standing out there in the cold wind just to get some sun. Uh, yeah, so uh, anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. It was just kind of an amazing thing about the, the trip. But the idea that the spirit is like a wind, which you can perceive around you, but you can't pin it down. You can't, uh, it has no substance for you to cling to. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. That's how Jesus puts it. You have the realization that Jesus is talking about. You begin to perceive the workings of the Spirit of God as you would perceive a wind blowing on you. Now, you don't know where it begins or ends exactly, but you can feel it when the wind blows. You know when something is working, when something is moving around you, and so that's seeing. That's seeing the kingdom of God. That's the realization that to fight God and God's will for you, which is your salvation, which is the best possible thing that could happen to you, to fight against God's will for you is to walk against the wind. It's to sail into a storm. And it's needless. It accomplishes nothing other than your destruction. And repentance then is the process of turning toward in in terms of turn toward the direction of the wind and and into the wind or the current of God stop fighting against God and then entering involves baptism and also much more entering the kingdom means trying to become one with that wind with that spirit that you've begun to perceive through Christ we're trying to be changed away from being a thing that stands against the wind and to be a thing that moves with it without resistance. Wherever God's taking me, that's where I want to go. Whatever he's doing with me, that's what I want to do. Wherever he's leading me, I will follow. That is the attitude of being a servant, not just to our fellow man, and that's very important, but a servant of God in the sense of he gives me my marching order. He's in control of every part of me. That's a very high calling. That's a high level of devotion. And we're constantly trying to renew ourselves in that devotion. Set ourselves apart again. Set ourselves apart anew for Him. Trying to see His purpose for us ever more clearly. And the sad side of it, the downside of it, I guess, the the depressing aspect of this is that to be outside of Christ and to not know the message, to to have not heard it or have not have had it explained to you, is to be like one who cannot even perceive the wind, who cannot even feel the wind on their face. 
to be blind to something as fundamental as the, as the wind blowing on, on your skin, um, we would say that's not much of a life. We would say you're a dead person living. You can't see something that basic. And in the same way, those that have never heard the message are dead to the only thing in the world that matters, which is the gospel message that's powerful to save. Oh, I went the wrong direction there. So, this is why evangelism is so important. <laughs> Not to bring this all back to evangelism, but it kind of does uh, go back to evangelism. We must share the word with the world so that they may be born again, born from above. And it doesn't come through us. It comes from above. It comes from God. But how will they hear if they do not have a preacher? Christ came to declare the word, and he sent out his students, his disciples, some of whom were specially sent out and called apostles to declare the word. And it's been the work of every Christian since to declare that gospel message of Christ in whatever their sphere of influence is, to whatever extent they can. Our work is to create the conditions for people to both perceive and enter into the kingdom of God through Christ. It comes through faith. It comes through trust. It comes through obedience. But it comes ultimately and finally through the grace of God, which is poured out continually and without limit for us which we may constantly come back to and take in his forgiveness we've been born from above and when we're feeling low it's important to remember that it was not God's purpose toward us that we should fail he didn't send his son for us to disappoint us but rather to rescue us to bring us home and that's what Jesus is going to get around to in the second part of this. Because in verse 9, Nicodemus answers and says to him, how can these things be? And that's a big question that Jesus spends a little bit of time answering. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. And the title of the lesson is going to be, For God So Loved the World. And as you can imagine, it's going to hinge around John 3, verse 16 which is a verse that's quoted very often and um, appreciated in its context very little. Um, but it's, um, it's really, I think, going to be a, a really good study next week uh, to get there. But for this week, again, I gave you a little homework this morning, said think about ways we can cultivate that fruit. And this lesson's homework uh, is this. Let's think of ways that we can express this truth to people and lead people to this realization your origin is not in your molecular structure your origin is not in your cells your origin is not in biology it's not even in your parents here on this earth your origin is in God he was the one who conceived you and he is the one to whom you must give account he is the one who loves you still and calls you still we have to find ways to bring that message to a world that needs it very badly. A world that needs to know that it is loved by God and that God has a purpose for it. He's calling it to newness of life.
If any have any need, if you have not yet made yourself a child of God, um, if you've not been made a child of God through the grace of Christ, by coming to that outstretched hand that he extends always, come, take the hand that's been outstretched. And if you're a child of God who has fallen away, come back. Make uh, uh, your needs and your desires uh, known, and and we will pray for you and uplift you uh, before the Lord, because that is our purpose as a group. That is our purpose as a local church, is to 